0: for the mark saying when you see me coming i've got him on my mind i want you to think about that for just a minute with me when you see people coming do you trust that they've got him on their mind let's make this real specific Everybody in the body of Christ, on some level or another, is called to submit. And not just to submit to their understanding, their version of who God is and what God does, but we are all called to submit to one another. Children are called to submit to parents. Wives are called to submit to husbands. Brothers are called to submit to elders. Elders are called to submit to overseeing elders in their lives. Everybody is in submission on one level or another. And submission is just another word for humility. It's how we become humble in a specific task or in a specific obedience to God. When there is a way that is not our way, and God says this is how it needs to be done, we can't do that on our own strength. But when someone comes with the, the mission of God, and this is the mission, Isaiah said, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light of dawn in them. Amen? This is the word of His power. This is what we are built upon. Amen? This rock of the unchangeable Word of God. Amen? So when someone comes to me with the mission of His Word, and I choose to come under their mission, then I am submitting. I'm in submission. That's what the word literally means, to come under the mission of. But when we see them coming, do we believe that they have Him on their mind? When we see them coming, and you know, we all know when we see them coming, they got that look in their eye. Oh, no, what did I do wrong this time? I see them coming. Do they have him on their mind? If they have him on their mind, and I believe that they have him on their mind, then when I submit, it's really just an indirect way of submitting to him. Paul says in Ephesians 5, Wives, submit to your husbands and reverence them as the Lord. Is he saying that wives should should pretend that their husbands are God's? Is that what Paul is saying? No, he's saying wives should remember that they're not submitting to the fallible, imperfect flesh, but rather they're submitting to the order that God set up. All the people who occupy the different places in that order, they're not perfect people. But the order is a perfect order. And it's God's perfect order of creating a chance for grace in an imperfect world. You see, if we don't find the opportunities to submit, to humble ourselves, then grace never comes into our life. Because grace comes as we humble ourselves. Isn't that what James tells us? And Peter as well? He gives grace to the humble. And the archetypal sin that has been controlling the minds of men and women since the fall is the sin that we would become like gods. And so God in His gracious providence has given us opportunities to deny our godhood, to deny our autonomy, And to submit, not to perfect people, but to submit to a perfect order given by a perfect God. And to trust that those imperfect people are in His hand. This is perfectly illustrated by King David. You remember that the reason King David was anointed as king was because Saul was rejected by God. Now, who chose Saul to be king? God chose Saul to be king. He was chosen by God. And yet, something happened in Saul's life. What happened that made God reject Saul? Saul lost his humility. He lost his ability to submit to Samuel. Saul was king, but as is the case with everyone in a place of leadership in the body of Christ, especially they have to submit. And Saul, when he was given the command to obey Samuel, he tried to flex that and reinterpret it according to his own design. He was rejected by God. You remember? And Samuel told Saul, When you were small in your own eyes, God made you king over all of Israel. But see now, he has torn the kingdom from your grasp, and he has rejected you from being king. And yet, this man who was rejected by God, whose anointing had departed, who was self-seeking and even a murderer, this man was honored by David until the day of Saul's death. Why did David honor Saul? Because he was honoring the order of God. He was not honoring the placeholder. He was honoring the place. You remember as we spoke recently, Jesus told the Jewish people of His day they should honor the Pharisees because they sat in the seat of Moses. They occupied the chair of Moses. They were rejected by God. In fact, they were on their way to hell. And yet, it was important that the people have honor and submission in their life For their sake. God will hold the Pharisees accountable. God will hold King Saul accountable. But God has put people in our lives. And he's asked us to submit to them. And when we submit. We don't submit to man. But to God. In fact Paul In Colossians, even said this was true of slaves submitting to masters. I want to read to you from Psalms 84. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Yahweh of hosts! My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of Yahweh. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. The bird also has found a house and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Yahweh of hosts, my King and my God. How blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. And then this is the part that really got me. How blessed is the man whose strength is in you whose heart is forever set on pilgrimage. Passing through the valleys of Baca, they make it a spring of joy. The early rain also covers it with blessings. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. He ends by saying they're not disappointed. They appear before God. They don't miss their appointment with God in Zion. And why is this? Because their heart is set on pilgrimage. They're going somewhere. I want to speak to you tonight about submission as a means to get somewhere. If we understand submission as an end of its, in itself, we will become disgruntled and discouraged. But submission is God's means of moving us out of the places where we reached our limitations, where we came to our limits and could go no further. Submission takes us in a way we could not go in our own strength. And submission will never work if you don't have your heart set on pilgrimage. If you're not going somewhere in God. You can't even submit to this word as it comes to you tonight unless you feel an urgency in your own soul that I've got to get somewhere by the end of this meeting. Get somewhere so that I may stand before God And appear in Zion in his presence, in his house. That's ultimately got to be our goal. And I'm going to speak about husbands and wives, and I'm going to speak about different kinds of relationship, but ultimately this applies to everybody. If you want to title my message tonight, this is it Cul-de-sac. That's the title of my message tonight. Cul-de-sac. It's spelled C-U-L hyphen D-E hyphen sac S-A-C. Who here knows what a cul-de-sac is? Well, good. I didn't pick some Greek word. It's a French word, actually. What's a cul-de-sac? It's that thing at the end of the neighborhoods where you turn around. <laughs> it's where the street goes no further. It's a dead end. If you look it up in Webster's, it's a dead end. And you know what it literally means? I looked it up. It means the bottom of the bag. Or literally, the bottom of the sack. You got there and there's nothing more. There's nowhere else to go. And I think that the most discouraging relationships our cul-de-sac relationships. We all have a sense of pilgrimage in our heart. It's actually proven by anthropologists that it's one of the most common motifs of human imagination all over the world, in all centuries, in all cultures. Pilgrimage is always there. People want to go somewhere. People don't want to believe that this is all there is. There's no more to see, there's no more to feel, there's no more to be. That's why somebody gets married. My wonderful wife isn't here tonight, she's got the stomach bug. I trust she'll be doing better this evening. I wish she could stand here with me, but she's not here. But I know why I got married. I know why she got married. And I think I know why most of you want to get married. There's far more than just the need, the sexual needs and such like that. You want to go somewhere with somebody. You want to travel the roads of life. And you want to discover those surprises and experience that adventure with somebody. Because the greatest surprise and the greatest adventure you imagine will be discovering that somebody. It's not so much the places you go, but it's what is unfolding between the two of you. So it's a journey. It's a call to an exciting journey. An adventure. Whenever someone speaks of adventure around my dad, he always says, now wait a minute. The root of the word adventure is venture, which means journey. He says, you can be excited about adventure just so long as you know where the venture is taking you. I love adventure. Well, adventure is saying like, that's like saying I love, uh, I love roads. I mean, where do they go? I mean, I love the road. Which road? Well, the one that goes from here to there. Why do you love it? Because I love getting there. So the relationships have everything to do with the journey, long-term relationships. And where relationships die is when one party or both parties decide that they're not going to go any further. And they lose sight of why they came together. They lose sight of what it was all about. And instead of it being all about the destination and getting there together and learning from each other what must be learned, it it really shifts and it becomes all about this is me, accept me for who I am, take it or leave it. And there's nothing so disheartening as a dead-end relationship. For that matter, a dead-end conversation. Have you ever been somewhere special, somewhere beautiful, and you came home and you began to tell it to somebody, and at first their eyes sparkled with recognition of your depiction of the place they would never been, but then all of a sudden they glazed over and they were thinking about something else. Did you feel like finishing your account? Huh? No. Have you ever read a book that just cranked your tractor and made you feel all incredible? And you went in and you started telling someone, maybe they didn't even want to hear it first. But at some point or another, they engaged with you. They put themselves into gear and they went down that journey with you. Now if at some point they tune you out and and it no longer feels like they're getting what you're saying or going where you're going in your mind, your imagination, then pretty soon you can't tell them the book anymore. I remember my poor exhausted mom, when, uh, when I would finish a book, like most of my brothers, we would march in and tell my mother the entire story, even though she had read the book before us and edited it for us. <laughs> and we would just emphatically stand there and tell her the entire story. Sometimes she would be exhausted and she would say, Okay, I'm just going to lean back and I might shut my eyes, but I'm not sleeping. And I think when she first shut her eyes, that was the truth. I don't know how long it lasted, though. You have to believe that every circumstance of life, the good things and the bad things, are intended to take you from a point A to a point B, and from a B to a C, and that you are supposed to go down the alphabetical events of your life, getting somewhere. If you teach yourself to think in, the, in this way, I am an imperfect person, but this is who I'll always be. Now just learn to live with it. Then you've robbed yourself of the very meaning of relationship and certainly the very meaning of your life. It's a dead end. And it will go no further. Amen. You made it a dead end. Has anybody ever experienced being in an unfamiliar part of town? And that that some moment you decide it's time to go, and you want to find the main road, and you take a course, you drive down a street, and you really think this is going to get you there. As a matter of fact, you know that the main road is due south, and this street happens to head due south. And you're like, ah, I knew there was a road around here somewhere, thank you. Mm, and you kind of accelerate and you're getting there and, and then all of a sudden there's this dumb little yellow sign that says dead end no outlet going nowhere and do you know that feeling it's like I just wasted my time I can't get back those minutes and everything in you just kind of goes <sighs> you feel like your excitement just went out the floorboard of your car You see, every event is a street. It's a turn. It's a stretch in the road. The good things, the bad things. The successes and the failures. And so when somebody comes to you, you've got to believe that their heart is set on pilgrimage. You've got to believe that their heart is stayed on Him. When you see me coming, I've got Him on my mind. I've got Him on my mind when we're happy. I've got Him on my mind when we blow it. I've got Him on my mind in every situation. I'm wanting for us to see something we've never seen before, to crest the hill and see a new horizon, to understand our way, understand the road, the path, to get a little closer to that light of dawn husband comes in says, I want to talk to you about something. Some of you who I wanted to talk to tonight, you decided not to show up. Well, I'm just going to make sure you get the tape. Some of you, your husband comes in and says, I want to talk to you about something. And as soon as I say that, you put yourself in defensive mode. Why do you put yourself in defensive mode? What is defensive mode? It's digging in the brakes. It's clawing the ground and saying, I won't budge. I'm right. And you're not going to make me budge. And he looks into your face. And he doesn't see someone saying, we're in this together. We're going to get there. I want to see what you see and I know you want to see what I see and together we're going to see what God sees. He doesn't feel that. He feels this intractableness. Amen? There's no traction possible here. Why do you feel that way? Has anybody ever felt defensive when someone came and asked them to submit on a matter? Come on, get your hand up there if you've ever felt defensive. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> Why? Why did you feel defensive? I'm not trying to demonize it. I'm trying to understand it. Why did you feel defensive? Because the assumption is that I'm right. And if you're going to challenge that, I'm going to have to humble myself and say, no, I'm wrong. That's right. Well, and I'll just be a little specific. I say this little book is blue, and you say it's black, and you come to me and say, I see that book is black. Human beings, we ought to just be able to say, you know, you're right. But we, we, our sense of self is all caught up in our rightness. So if I admit that this book is black instead of blue, like I claimed, if I admit that it's black, then I feel diminished in myself because I made my sense of worth, my sense of self, all about my rightness, even in matters this petty. And I don't want to feel diminished. I don't want to feel set back. Are you having a little insight into why we're defensive? Who wants to become, who, who wants to feel diminished and at a loss and wrong? Who wants to feel that? Nobody wants to feel that. So how do we overcome that sense of defensiveness? Because it's not the logic, it's not the facts of it that really is ever at play. We know that. It's not the facts that are at play. It's the sense of score. The sense that I'm right. And that somehow that makes me more of a person. More sure of myself. How do we overcome that as Christians? Here's how. As Christians, we categorically accept that we're wrong. Period. We accept that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. It's one of the basic tenets and maxims of Christianity. We're wrong. And that we're no longer playing the game of living by our rightness. But we have died to that ego that lives through every little scored point of his own rightness. And we have found our identity and our sense of self, our sense of worth in the acceptance, the favor, the grace, the goodness of God. We have shifted our sense of worth from the details where we're right to the place where we're loved. Uh, if you and I both believe that our eyes may be colorblind and that we probably don't know the accurate color, we're both going to have an attitude that clings to our facts or our understandings quite a bit light, more lightly. And if it's a relationship that is ordered by God, Where for the sake of one, he asks them to submit to another. Amen. Then we have to remember that the book is not what's at stake. But keeping this old ego dead so that love can take its place. That is what's at stake. It's the enemy's game to divert us from the things we know, the things we've come to realize and believe. It's the enemy's game to get us back in those old ruts of competition and rivalry, to get us feeling like we got a score on every point. That's the enemy's game. And more than anything, the enemy does not want you to realize the miracle of that relationship whether I'm speaking of a relationship between a disciple and an elder, or whether I'm speaking of a relationship between a husband and a wife, that relationship represents a potential miracle. Because the one absolute in the kingdoms of this world is competition, and if competition, then division. So the one thing that's not possible at all in the world is true unity. And if there is unity, then that speaks of a God who is greater than all of the games and all of the power trips of this world and that He has captured your heart and He is reigning in your life. So every time unity succeeds, the devil gets a black eye. You think he likes black eyes? The success of your marriage represents the demise of of the building block of the kingdoms of this world, just like the success of your marriage represents the success of the most basic building block in the kingdom of God. The marriage is where it all begins. If marriages don't work, if marriages don't have unity, then nothing is going to work. Why is this so? Because Jesus said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. A house that is leaning on itself, consistent with itself, that has unity and oneness. That house is impregnable. Nothing can topple it. It will stand. So it has been the enemy's business to destroy the kingdom of God by destroying marriages first and foremost. Do you think that the feminist movement really loves women? Absolutely not. In fact, they caused women to accept the premise that their sense of worth and success could only be judged in comparison to men. A feminist judges herself by men. She does not recognize, I mean a worldly feminist, she does not recognize that she is different, and that in her differentness, in her otherness, she is equally valid and valuable and precious. She, believes, she adopts manhood as the only standard by which to judge herself. Now tell me that really is respecting women. It is not. The kingdom of God re- recognizes that everyone is different. But it finds a place where everyone can find grace. And we recognize that we're not submitting to Saul per se, but we're submitting to the order of God. We're submitting to God. The person who hates correction has allowed their sense of self to be caught up in the detail being corrected. If the detail topples, their sense of self topples with it. The person who accepts correction recognizes that we are on a journey. We are on a journey through enemy territory. We are behind enemy lines. And we can't trust a lot of what we see. There are landmines everywhere, but we can trust each other. And we can trust the God who put us together and who will keep us together. The mindset that accepts correction recognizes that where I am now is not where I've got to be by the end of today. That I am on a journey out of the kingdoms of this world and into the kingdom of the Son of His love. And that heaven will only be the last step in a long journey, a destination. And that if I haven't walked free of all the things that would compete for my allegiance, would compete for my devotion, compete for my distraction, then I have not proven the supremacy of God and His love in my life. He is not truly my Lord. He has not truly captured my heart. So the attitude that accepts correction says... I'm not in an opposing trench from you and we're not fighting each other. You and I are in the same trench together and we are fighting what keeps us apart. The mindset that facilitates unity does not look at the other according to what you can get from them. But it looks at the other as the other side the other piece in the miracle God wants to make of your life, a miracle that cannot stand alone with just you, but that is a miracle of how two things come together in the love of God. And they can become one in mind, one in heart, one in spirit, one in life. If you're in a war trench with somebody, And the Germans are over there, and you're in the Allied trench over here, and somebody says to you, Hey Hank, that's a hand grenade hanging in your collar. Get it out quick. Do you turn around and say, Why are you always picking on me? That's just the way my uniform fits. (laughs) If you're in a trench with your partner, and they point out something to you that's wrong with you, you tend to move very swiftly. Why? Because you know it matters. Let me go to the flip side of this. Why do you hate correction? Because you don't believe it matters. Because you've learned to disrespect the little events of your life as just haphazard, who cares things. When God, in fact, sees them, As meaningful things. Things that are not great. Things that are not fun sometimes. But things that can be redeemed as useful if they are put in the hands of God and dealt with in the context of His order. Hey honey, you got a hand grenade in your collar. You're always picking on me. Hey honey, I I wish you'd change your tone of voice when you talk like that. You're always picking on me. Why do I say that? Because I don't believe that it matters. I don't believe it affects our success in this trench. I don't believe it takes us closer to winning or to losing. So the mindset of someone who hates correction is someone who believes little things don't matter. Where do little things really not matter so much? When you're not at war. But when you're at war, Who would deny that little things matter? If I have dry socks or wet socks, does that matter? See, if I have dry socks or wet socks tonight, it doesn't really matter because I'm not at war. But if I'm in trenches day after day after day and I can't keep my socks dry, it could kill me. Fungus could begin and then bacteria set in And before you know it, I could die without ever being hit by a bullet or a grenade. When you're at war, little things matter. If you hate correction, it's because you don't believe you're at war. You don't believe that the enemy's attack is that nuanced, is that subtle. You don't believe that to fortify your mind and heart you have to seal up every crack and make the effort to bring every thought into captivity to the mind of Christ. You don't believe that God looks upon the heart and that he will judge the secrets of men's heart. You don't believe it matters. You have forgotten you're at war. And if you've forgotten you're at war, then you've forgotten that the correction is to make you correct and that it really is about your well-being. It's really to take you one step closer to heaven on this journey of relationship that we call God's love. And so you seal yourself off. And you say... If you tell me I'm wrong, then that means you don't love me. That means you don't accept me for who I am. If somebody really loves you, my friend, they should never accept you for who you are. They should accept you for who you are becoming. Because we are fallen, pitiful, broken, sinful human beings. And the purpose of love is to redeem us from whom we, who we are and to make us what we could never make ourselves. The greatest act of love is to believe that I can change, that I don't have to be this person any longer. And if you hate correction, it's because you've given up on God. You've given up on yourself you believe that you can't change. And if you really can't change, then it is cruelty for someone to ask you to. If I was born without a leg, and someone didn't like me because I didn't have a leg, that would not be correction. That would be cruelty. They would be rejecting me because of what I couldn't change. And wouldn't we all agree that's wickedness? see, that's the thing about relationship. If it's the love of God, they love you for who you are in the sense of what you cannot change. But they also love you for those things that God calls as though they are even before they're quite there. They love you for who God's making you to be. And they're encouraging you. They're believing in you. They're helping you become that. Let me make a contrast. If I'm born without a leg and someone comes up and says, I just don't like people without legs. And I say, you are a cruel, mean person. And I can actually then go pout and feel sorry for myself legitimately. Well, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But if I go around cutting off other people's legs and somebody comes up to me and says, I just hate people who cut off other people's legs. I don't have that right to say you are a cruel, mean, ugly person, do I? Why not? Because it's a behavior. It's not a condition. And if it's a condition, it's a behavior-induced condition. And I can be as hard as I need to be in telling you to stop cutting their leg off because I believe it's a behavior that you can stop. In fact, I believe if I don't get right in your face and stop you, you're probably not going to be able to. But with my help, you can. But the enemy wants us to believe that all correction is rejection. Is that what the Word of God teaches us? The Lord disciplines those He hates and scourges every son He rejects. Isn't that what the Bible tells us? No, He tells us that discipline is a sign of God's love and that correction is a sign of God's acceptance. The Lord disciplines those He loves and scourges every son He receives. If He doesn't love you, if He doesn't receive you, if He's not invested in you, He doesn't take the time. He doesn't give a care. But if He does, He believes you can change. And if He believes you can change, it's because He believes He has something wonderful for you, a promise, a kingdom something glorious, a miracle for you to inherit, and he wants you to stop cutting off people's legs or else you can't get it. God doesn't rebuke you for the things you cannot change. He accepts you and loves you for the things you cannot change. He rebukes you for the things you can change, but that you've given up on, that you've accepted as this is good enough, and I'll go no further. Because when God walks into your life, He feels that feeling you felt when you drive down the street. He feels that letdown that says, this is a dead-end life. This is a dead-end mind. This is a dead-end heart. This is a dead-end person. This is where the kingdom stalls and dies out. This is a waste of time. I can speak the truth, but I can see... It's not resonating with their heart and mind. They're not processing this truth as energy and metabolizing it as power to obey the things I'm speaking. So you represent a cul-de-sac in God's efforts. And God doesn't walk down cul-de-sacs. Love avoids dead ends. Because love, its purpose is First and foremost, redemption. And redemption is all about taking us out of the places where we're dead, where we're lost, where we're weak, and taking us to those places where we're alive, where we're loved, where we're strong. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. Are you a dead-end kind of person? Seriously, are you a dead-end kind of person? Don't blame anybody else. Blame yourself if you haven't found the kind of love you want. Because love is a thing for a journey. It's a power unto a purpose. A purpose unto a destination. And the destination being God Himself. If you're a dead-end kind of person, you've given up on what God meant this to be, then you're going to look for something else and you're going to live for that fleeting moment when you drive down the street and you believe you're going somewhere. So you're going to have to have new things constantly, new, 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 ever changing, ever changing, ever changing, ever changing because you don't want to realize again and again and again that you just keep ending up at a dead end. So you're going to have to distract your despairing heart. From all its dead-end choices. By just choosing more and more and more and more dead-end streets. So that you can at least entertain the thrill of a momentary excitement. I'm going somewhere. I'm going somewhere. This is new. I've never seen this house before. I think this ends up on the road. Oh, there it is again. But you'll leave behind those new things. And you'll leave people and places disappointed. Everything. Life will be a disappointment. Because life was never about the glory of realizing how good you were. Life was about the glory of realizing you could change and where you could get with somebody else. With many somebody else's. It's not about who you are, it's about where you're going. The song says, joy is not in where we've been, joy is who's waiting at the end. Well, you can also say, joy is not in who we've been, but in who's waiting at the end. I remember when we got engaged, we were sitting on the overlook, and I was trying to describe how tough my life was going to be. <laughs> and um, I did a pretty good job, I I'd like to think. And I said, so you really want this? <laughs> and of course she said yes, and I said, okay, now here's one thing, we've got to promise each other that we're never going to situate ourselves in opposing ditches, but that we're going to climb into the same ditch and face what's opposing us. That We're going to understand that we've got to take the risk of trust and override those instincts of competition, those instincts that make me believe my sense of worth is in my rightness. And we've got to climb into the same ditch. and We've got to say, God, show us what you want us to see, because we know we're at war. We know that it matters, and we want to win. More than anything, we want to become, we want to be who you've called us, who you've made us to be. You lose trust when you don't believe that it matters. And you believe they're just picking on you. That's just the way my clothes fit. He doesn't say the condition of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn. He said the path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn. It's a journey. We're going somewhere and we're helping each other get there. And in the process, God is performing a miracle that is a mockery to all the lies of the enemy that wants to destroy love and separate people. He is performing the miracle of unity. The unity of the spirit. That's the only kind of unity that's legit. My dad used to quote, Four lines to us frequently of a poem. And I I have to say, it's probably one of my favorite verses I think I've ever heard. (laughs) But it says this An aged man is but a paltry thing, a tattered coat upon a stick. Unless soul claps its hands and sings and louder sings for every tatter in his mortal dress. An aged man is but a paltry, meaningless, small, wasted. An aged man is but a paltry thing, a tattered coat upon a stick. You can almost picture it. Tattered coat, that's the body that has suffered what age and time has done to it. Has suffered pain and sorrow, has suffered hard work, has suffered disease. An aged man is but a paltry thing, a tattered coat upon a stick. Unless soul, unless your soul can clap its hands and sing for every tatter, in His mortal dress. All the things you go through, aging itself, it's meaninglessness. It's a big anticlimactic letdown unless all the events of your life took you somewhere. And for everything you suffered, for every strain and drop of sweat, your soul can clap its hands and say, I learned something from that and I got closer to God and to love. I learned grace from that. I learned patience from that. I learned joy from that. The things that I have suffered have not been in vain. This life and all of its hardships that could have been a heap of uselessness, God has redeemed And my mortal dress, though it be tattered, it makes my soul clap for all the ways I learn to submit to God and find beauty out of ashes and meaning out of meaninglessness. Your relationship is but a paltry thing unless your soul can learn to clap and sing and louder sing for every tatter in its mortal dress. All of life is but a paltry thing until it becomes meaningful when seen as little tiny victories, little tiny advances in a great big cosmic war, dignifying the small things of your life. When you're understanding that you're on a journey and that they represent a chance to get a mile closer, it's from faith to faith, and glory to glory, that the righteousness of God is being revealed. My soul has no pleasure in one who draws back unto perdition, the writer of Hebrews said, but we are not of those who draw back unto perdition, who shrink back, but those who press on unto the saving of our souls. The miracle is not what I can get from you. The miracle is can we become one? Can we learn to trust each other? To trust each other's love? Can we learn to believe that when we see Him coming, He's got Him on His mind? Somehow this takes me closer to God. Somehow this takes me further down the journey. Further down the road on this journey. So look at the things that have become dead ends and see if God can bring a bulldozer of new direction and purpose and open up the cul-de-sacs and make a way where there was no way. Turn to your husband, your pastor, your father, your mother and say, I'm no longer a dead end. When you speak to me, I'm going somewhere with you. You can look into my eyes and know that I'm not a dead end. This isn't stalling just inside my ears. I get it. I believe in it. I trust you. Come on, let's go there. We're going somewhere. We're going somewhere together. And the miracle is that we're learning to trust each other as accomplices in helping us get get there. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Together we can make it. If you're a cul-de-sac, God wants to open it up today. He wants to make a thoroughfare of grace through your heart and life. Amen. Thank you, Jesus.